Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and I run Strength Guild here in Topeka, Kansas, getting ready for the big Jim Wendler NLV meet next weekend, a week from today. Ooh. I'm nice. uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm the owner of Extreme Human Performance, created the Flex Diet Cert, bunch of other stuff, and I'm actually at home again up until hey. this Wednesday. Well, well, well I'll be at the ISSN conference in Vegas. So That'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Hi, everybody. I'm Michelle Blakely. I'm really honored to be here with these gentlemen. I own C, Jake, and Jane Train, and I was a personal trainer for years, a professional modern dancer before that, and now I help fit pros with the business side of what they do. Okay. And we do uh, coaching and online courses. All righty. All right, everyone. We are going to have a topic of the day after the break, which is essentially about money matters when it comes to business. Um, it's why we're asking Michelle to you know, share some of her knowledge with us on that front. Uh, so if you have a clientele or you anything related to fitness and making money, then you might want to tune in for that after the break. Uh, but first, we've got our usual mail and news. Strength and muscle sport news. Uh, let me start with uh, this mail. I, I feel like this is something that uh, Mike and Phil and I have all discussed in the past. Uh, maybe Michelle has comments too, but this is from Cody. He says, a bit of personal background. My two fitness interests are lifting weights and playing basketball. I lift about four times a week, and I play pickup games uh, once, sometimes twice a week. Uh, at 26, I have no intention of competing at high level for either sport, but I would like to maximize my abilities as much as possible without spending significantly more time working out. Your most recent episode talking about training to be a firefighter through different methods sparked my question. And sort of here it is. As I've gained weight from lifting... I found it increasingly difficult to maintain a level of cardio that allows me to walk into any pickup game of basketball and play competitively throughout the entire time. Since I'm not a huge fan of running, I was wondering what the research shows about the transfer of cardiovascular endurance from one modality to another, like biking to running or kettlebell swings to swimming. You get the idea. Um, could one maintain or even increase an ability to compete in a sport just through doing Metcon-style workouts or during endurance modalities that are completely different from what the sport requires? Uh, I've done some cursory searches on Google Scholar, but to no avail. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, and keep up the great work. And make sure to never miss an episode of Iron Radio. Uh, have a great start to your week. Cody. Okay, Phil, I know you work with <laughs> athletes and lifters, and mm -hmm. you use—I mean, you bank on the fact that barbells transfer from a strength perspective. But what about, I guess, you know, becoming big and strong to the point that it might 
it might actually interfere with well basketball. yeah i mean that's definitely possible i mean uh it's another one of those things what's more important to you to pick up basketball or being jacked <laughs> you know at yeah. some point you got to pick one yeah. um so it just depends on i mean if you're okay if you want to be just big and strong then at some point you have to realize that your pickup basketball game skills are going to drop some and that can be okay as long as you're personally okay with that that's that's one of those demons you have to face within yourself um there's there's a negative to any goal that is taken beyond average right yeah you know once you step out of average strength then of course other things are going to fall but i mean that said i mean yeah i mean i, I deal with it with with football players and stuff, but then again, that's a totally different sport than basketball. You're pretty much constantly jogging all the time. Football, it's three to ten seconds of all-out effort. So, right. um, but yeah, I mean, there's transfer in, in all things you do. Like if you became a really good swimmer, and you would potentially be an okay at okay at running. I mean, just because you have some endurance capacity. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think you could do that. But, I mean, you're going to have to train. If, if your important thing is basketball, you're probably going to have to, like, lightly jog a lot. I mean, it's just part of what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, if that's if that's really what's important to you. Specificity, right? I mean, this is the yeah, specificity I mean, principle. Yeah. If you're going to excel in one aspect of physical yes. fitness, like muscular strength, um, or if we consider, like, you know, hypertrophy and body comp, um, right. Yeah, it may be at the expense I mean, of the other things. Look at Olympic athletes. They are not the best, like, cross yeah. trainers, right, because well, they're I mean, specialists. Yeah, look at look at a basketball team. There's a reason, okay, there's five people playing at once. There's a reason there's more than five people on the team. They take breaks. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The basketball players don't just play the whole game. You know, they, they go for a while, and they take a break, and somebody else comes in. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, generally, so... Mike, um, any thoughts on this as far as transfer? I, I, you've done some reading on that sort of thing, haven't you? Like transferability of different kinds of training, and yeah. So if you, I mean, first off, I agree with Phil. If you want to be really good at something, like really good, you're probably going to have to specialize, right? We can't get around the fact that if you want to get better at running, you need to run. If you want a bigger deadlift, you got to deadlift. But uh, so what he's kind of after is something kind of a little bit in between. Mm-hmm. So as long as he knows he's making, you know, a little bit of a, a trade-off there. And I think you can get to a pretty good level with, with both of them before the mm-hmm. paths really start to diverge. True. Um, one thing he didn't mention is, is he doing any cardio training at all outside of just basketball? So it kind of sounds like not. So that might be probably the low-hanging fruit to do that. Um, in terms of how does it transfer pretty easy experiment he could set up for himself to figure that out i like doing a lot of with people are lifting and they still have some lifting goals i actually sound like a broken record but i like using the concept to rower because they're always kind of pulling against a flywheel which has some speed and power component to it Um, plus if he's already playing basketball and getting kind of dinged up from the impact there's no impact on a rower because it's you know you're just pulling against something it uh, gives you all the feedback, gives you all the data. So what he can do is there's some good uh, equations. If you just do a 2,000-meter row on the, the equipment as fast as you can, go to the Concept2 site. You can figure out what your VO2 max is for that. Uh, for running, the best one that's been verified is something called a Cooper Run Test. So do 12 minutes as far as you can get. And you can just Google and figure out what your VO2 max for that is. 
So now he's got a baseline with sort of a VO2 on rowing and a VO2 on running. And if he wants, he could run the experiment of, okay, I'm going to try to get better at this rowing thing for six to eight weeks, and then just do a Cooper run test and see if it actually gets better, right? Without doing the running thing, which he may or may not be able to do more running, does it actually transfer and get better? My thought is it probably will for a while, and then you'll see kind of a plateau. All right, so I have an obstacle course racer I work with in Australia who's pretty highly rated. We do a lot of her stuff initially on the rower, and then now we've been doing more uh, running stuff just because we've got her VO2 max pretty good on a rower, and it did well for most races, but now it's kind of starting to plateau. So now she's going to have to just start doing a little bit more skill-specific stuff. Um, Last quick thing on that, too, is that you may want to look at what is the efficiency of his running. You know, we all have seen people who tend to lift a lot, and this isn't a, a hard rule, but in general... They're not always the most efficient runners. <laughs> so just from a biomechanical movement standpoint, usually you can do much better with that. You can reduce the amount of impact. You can pick up speed just by getting more efficient at running. Uh, if people are interested, I just tell them to look at how sprinters run. Now, again, that's not basketball because that's linear speed. Uh, but you can find some good stuff on the interwebs on that. Lee Taft has got some good stuff. Uh, my buddy Sean Mishka has got some good stuff. And... Yeah, so you can find that if you want, just even adding a little bit GPP, different movements, keep the quality high can help. Yeah, I agree with what you said a lot about up to a point, these are going to be mutually beneficial. Uh, I ran into this with with the competitive Taekwondo stuff when I was in my early 20s. Uh, Actually, I had my instructor, who I admire a lot, and used to say, Lonnie, you know, this is becoming a problem. Uh, You don't have to be Mr. Ohio. You don't have to be Mr. Midwest. Put down the dumbbells a little bit, you know, because at that point it was diverging, you know, like once you, you know, I started getting into the 190s around 200 pounds at my height. I'm not tall. I was getting gassed, you know, during some of these two hour long martial arts workouts, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, Not to mention the muscle soreness. Um, Just to bring this up for Cody. I mean, if you do try to play a game of basketball, if you're muscularly sore, you're going to be bogged down about 15 percent or so, you know, Mm -hmm. weakness and Mm -hmm. speed and. And that kind of stuff. Uh, the one caveat I can think of to getting your VO2 max test done, Mike gave some great practical tips, is if you do put on size over the years, uh, your VO2 max will go down because you're big, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Per, per Divided KG. by body weight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's an extreme, only partial caveat there. But it is true because I used to feel like that. By the time I was in grad school, my VO2 max was 33 you know, and that was just a constant joke among the people that I was around. I'm like, listen, uh, aerobic fitness, VO2 max is not the only marker, you know, of physical fitness there. That's ridiculous. Um, and I have sacrificed some of that by trying to weigh 230 pounds. Um, any, in any case, uh, those are some good thoughts. Michelle, would you, what would you say to someone like Cody who has, he's not trying to be, you know, an Olympian at either of these things, right. but... What do you think? My Well, the thing that I, I loved, of course, all of your comments, I thought they were great insights for him. What popped into my mind when he was first describing this sort of shift was I wonder how much he's educating himself about recovery and learning about, you know, really analyzing what he's doing and if he's ramping up a lot in both categories, right, the basketball and the lifting, 
how much is he doing in terms of tending to his sleep and recovering from this additional workload? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but at 26, I was invincible. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's great. But I wondered if that could be an an easy pocket that he could educate himself on a little bit more that could um, give a nice bang for his, his buck. I don't know what you guys think about that, but yeah. I was curious. Yeah, I mean it's true. You're um, Phil. You ages ago, Phil. You said something about the man who chases two rabbits doesn't eat, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. that's kind of what he's yeah, going to have to right. ask himself, right? Is how far do you want to pursue each of these things? Ultimately, yeah. If you just want to have fun with it, I think being bigger and stronger. And Cody, I'm sure you've seen this. It everything you do is so submaximal that yeah. it's actually fun to um, bully around <laughs> a little bit on the court, you know. Um, I'm not saying be a dick. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> it's fun to be big and strong. I mean, even when I was in high school and we were in uh, playing soccer, uh, that was a couple of years into our little bodybuilding early experimentation, and we were, like, so much stronger than everybody mm-hmm. else. And so, Yeah, look at the new fun. age of basketball players. They're not built like they yeah. used to be. Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, um, there's there's definitely ways to do it. I mean, now they're not like powerlifter or bodybuilder big, but they're much bigger than they used to be. Oh, and, right. I mean, I think about Dr. Yeah. J and some of the guys who I used yeah. to watch, you know, or Kareem yeah. Abdul-Jabbar. Those guys were decidedly mm-hmm. not jacked like these guys yes. are today. Yes. So. Yeah. Well, and I love what he's doing with both. And, you know, just coming from my some of my origin being in the dance world, like dancers had been doing that for years. Like they knew they couldn't handle the technique class in and out, in and out alone. And so they branch off into martial arts or capoeira or other other things that could, you know, know, yoga before yoga was Mm -hmm. as popular as it was. Pilates before Pilates was popular, like that could give them, you know, the strength or form that they needed, but not that repeated, you know, battering of the exact same movements all the time. Um, So I love that. I love the, you know, doing multiple things, but I agree with you guys that at some point you have to choose yeah, um, and which is your priority. I would say another aspect of this to reach is the mental aspect. It's mm-hmm. I deal with this with lift, lifters all the time that are high level, and it's like at some point you have to be mentally okay with pickup basketball is not my thing, but it's okay that I can go have fun with it mm-hmm. and not be the best. Yeah, He has to give up on like, okay, I might not be as good as I want to be. But that's okay. I can go have fun with this. This is my fun other activity. Like Highland Games for me generally is my fun other activity. And I go out there and I do okay. And I'm okay with it. But it's like, hey, you guys right. want to talk shit? Fine. Meet me on my field. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? And that's okay. Yeah. You know, and that's a mental hurdle to, to cross. It's like, okay, you might suck a little bit at something. And that's okay. It is. That's a good point. If you're a fighter, it's hard to say, listen, this is my fun one, right? You have the, that mindset of this is my fun activity. Yeah, I'm just going to go out here and have a good time. Yeah. You know, like I played racquetball a lot just to stay in shape for powerlifting. I, was I that good at it? No, but I really enjoyed it. So, yeah. uh, I'll say one last thing before moving on is, uh, well, we kind of already did about specificity, but yeah, um, to the point about jogging, I, I mean, basketball, uh, I have an old friend who's a strength coach, university strength coach for basketball. 
And he always says that basketball is an anaerobic sport because it's sprint and rest and sprint and rest. But to Phil's right. point, uh, it's very active recovery in between. Like you really do need that aerobic base. And I think running may be the way to do it. Um, I, I like Michelle's point about you don't want to have overuse injuries, you know, from the same kind of movements over and over. I personally would probably do a little bit more on the jogging side, honestly, than just tons of like, let's say, kettlebell work or something like that. Uh, and he used the term Metcon. I'm such an old fart, but I don't even like that's not a real term in exercise physiology. And so I'd like to you know, break this down into real terms. I know I'm going to get some crap for that, but um, I, I did, in fact, see that creep into an abstract once recently. And I'm like, let's keep the commercialization out of this a little bit because we have real terms for a lot of these things. Um, I understand when it's faster. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the, the point being is, yeah, I would actually think about what's as close to that basketball movement as possible that builds an aerobic base, you know, and maybe it's different kinds of running. Just some thoughts, though. Yep. All right. Um, I have one uh, paper here and I'm going to limit this so we can get to Michelle's origin story. But. I said I would bring this up last week. This is brand new from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition um, from Lingstad and colleagues, L-Y-N-G-S-T-A-D. This was that paper I mentioned about sex differences in response to ketogenic diets. Um, so the background here, it just says, well, let me give you the title, Investigating the Effects of Sex and Ketosis on Weight Loss Induced Changes in Appetite. So diet-induced weight loss is usually accompanied by increased appetite. I think most of us know that who have tried to diet. Uh, the aim of this study was to examine if sex modulates the impact of weight loss-induced changes in appetite and if ketosis alters the responses. So they took 95 individuals. Uh, about half were women. They were large. These were large uh, participants. So their body mass index was 37. So not, not a... a initially fit group to be sure but they underweight underwent eight weeks of a very low energy diet followed by four weeks of refeeding and weight stabilization so i think that's um that's interesting not only because that's responsible but also they're trying to get at after effects of these kinds of diets so uh body comp uh plasma concentrations of ketones and, and they looked at beta hydroxybutyrate um and then appetite-related hormones got attention as well. And they looked at GLP-1. So everyone, I might actually put a little figure up on our Facebook listeners page about um, GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide 1. I hate to put subjective terms on this, but I want you to think of it as quote-unquote good. Uh, this is something that could be helpful to a dieter. It helps with insulin secretion. It, it slows gastric emptying, right? It helps with satiety. Mm. Um, it's an incretin. And so it, it's something that you would want to see a little higher as you dieted, okay? So um, they also asked them subjective feelings of appetite. And they did this at baseline uh, at week 9 when they were in ketosis and at week 13 when they were back out of ketosis. So here's what happened. Um, the mean weight loss at week 9 was 17% for the men and 15% for the women. And again, that's a lot. But remember, they're starting, mm. they're very large. Um Anyway, and that was maintained at week 13. So after they were well out of ketosis, that was maintained. Uh, weight, fat, and even fat-free mass loss was greater in males. Now, that surprised me a little that the men would lose more fat-free mass 
on a low calorie ketogenic kind of diet. Um, but it, that is what it is. Um, and it says there was an increase in beta hydroxybutyrate. Again, that's one of the ketone bodies, of course, at week nine, higher in the females. So the, the women were slightly more ketotic, if you will. Uh, at week nine, basal GLP-1. So remember, that's something that arguably we want to keep up. Um, baseline GLP-1 was decreased only in the males at week nine. So in other words, they might have had a little bit more munchies. They might have had a little bit more problems uh, with the diet, arguably, from this one perspective. Uh, it says, whereas post-meal, right, post-prandial GLP-1 was increased in females, but only the females at week nine. So they were having a higher concentration of this, we're going to call it diet-supportive appetite-related hormone. Uh, Conclusions, ketosis appears to have greater beneficial impact on GLP-1 in females. However, sex does not seem to modulate the changes in the secretion of other appetite-related hormones, nor the subjective feelings of appetite seen with weight loss, regardless of ketotic state. Hmm. So some minor changes, we'll say, um, hormonal-type things between the sexes. And again, I promised I would bring that up, and that is spanking new stuff. Uh, Mike, you said there's been a lot of ketosis in the fitness uh, conferences and that kind of stuff lately. Yeah, it's one of those things where I kind of thought it was a trend for a while, but it's been around long enough now. It's probably a little bit more than a trend. But uh, yeah, like you said, I think there's some fascinating things we don't understand about it. I mean, I'm actually a big fan of ketogenic diets for some pathologies. I don't think that every healthy person has to be in a ketogenic state, though, to be healthy. Um, but, yeah, it's super interesting, especially a study like this where we're trying to get under the hood a little more to figure out what are some of the mechanisms going on because that's that's always useful, right? And that's just showing that this intervention or this stimulus, you know, provokes this response. So it's not necessarily that this is a ketogenic study diet. That just happened to be the thing that they were using to poke stuff around in the body and see what happens. Right. Yeah, I like the focus on sex differences because I'm going to be yeah. presenting on this next week, but we can't keep pretending that women are slightly smaller men, you know? Yeah. And, and so it does kind of get to that. Can I get an amen? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to be fair, Michelle, I mean, so often people say, how come all the research is on men? And it's because comparatively, I think men are sort of endocrine simpletons, right? We're just all month long, we're just <laughs> testosterone, you know, and where women are on this roller coaster. So it, to me, it's always begs the question when you do research on women is which which woman are we dealing with? Is it the early month person? Well, is it the late month? You know what I mean? I mean, there's some other I, control yeah. issues. Forgive me. I... Um... I do know what you mean. I actually have always thought it's more simple than that. And you guys correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I definitely have the sense you both live in, or all three of you, excuse me, live in the research much more deeply than I ever did. But when you're trying, first of all, in studies, right, you're trying to eliminate as many variables as possible, to your point, Lonnie, right? But then also, a lot of times, you're basing one study on the research of the 10 that have gone before, and if the original research was done on, you know, 25 college age, 22 year old males to change gears and then put different genders in, I don't know, you guys tell me. That's always been a bit of my thought 
in terms of why we hold on to certain standards or studies or things are based solely in white men. It's because, well, to, to sort of start from the beginning again with a more diverse population or with women, um, you know, isn't always easy. I think a lot of that's the motivation of the researcher. I mean, what you're saying would definitely, it, it could influence the initial hypothesis, right? Which is we think mm-hmm. the ketotic diet is going to do X. Um, but mm-hmm. then when you collect the data and it does Y, uh, then you report that and you say my hypothesis was wrong and the possible issue might have been that the, the earlier studies in the introduction part of my mm. manuscript was men. You know, so, I mean, it does pan out. You're right, though. It could impact the hypothesis. And honestly, you have to have enough motivation to go look at women. You've got to have some kind of rationale why they might be different, you know, for hormonal reasons or whatever. But, yeah, I mean, in fact, one of the things I just had some students do a poster on coffee and some of the sex differences with responses to pre-workout caffeine and coffee and whatnot. And, in fact, it's exactly illustrative of this point, which is we said uh, our hypothesis was that men and women wouldn't differ. We didn't have a lot of reason to believe they would mm. differ, but they did, in fact. Um, yeah. And so we said our data do not support our hypothesis, and here's possibly why. And then that that got us going to look at other literature as to possible reasons why the women got more alert you know, from the stimulant kind of thing. So um, – there's no doubt, though, that it's you have to if it takes decades to get to a certain point of um, groupthink, then it's going to take a fair amount of time to pull out of that as well, I think, is kind of what you're saying. Um, so I mean, I would agree with that from the standpoint that a lot of big academic places are tend to be very risk averse because you're graded mm-hmm. on how many things you can get published and how fast you can get them published. So if you have more supportive data, even if it's all in males, right. uh, it may be easier to get that through because you can lean on that data. I agree with Lonnie that that you know sometimes it doesn't always support your conclusion, but if you're purposely only enrolling males, then you can be like, hey, we have all this other previous data on it. Or if you do females, now you're like, well, we have data, but it's all males, but we want to look at this thing anyway. And I think it's just a, a little bit higher risk, but definitely needs to be done. Um, but that's just my bias. Yeah, and it can be higher cost for smaller universities, too. I mean, if Mike, you, you and I both, if we do some kind of weird um, pre-workout or herbal intervention or something, we have to mm-hmm. we have to buy pregnancy tests. We have to, you yeah. know, we have to be very cautious because of teratogenic effects and fetal effects and, mm. you know, and so there are other expenses involved with it as well. I'm, I'm not saying there's no sexism in where we've ended up in the literature. There has been. Um, but, yeah, when you're behind the scenes in the non-glamorous data collection daily kind of scene, there are expenses and, and timing issues that go on. And like I said, you just need researchers that are um, motivated enough, right, to actually want to look at this population because population specificity, in this case women, that's real. That's a real tenet of what we do. Populations differ. Right. Most of our listeners wouldn't want research on, you know, 95 year old sedentary men and then say, oh, look, that's a human study. This applies to you. You'd say, no, I don't feel like that's true. And so for the same reason, I think we need to consider how as a guy, I try to, you know, think about if I were a woman, I'd be a little salty about this. Like women are not slightly smaller men. 
And, and <laughs> so anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know that, and I just to, just to that point, myself included, I don't know that some of us are, you know, salty about it, although absolutely, you know, that's okay if people are, but just more, um, you know, I kind of bow to the altar of efficiency and accuracy and things like that. It's just, I, I think to step back and question if at times it's really the best science we can do. Right. Like, can we do better if we sort of, you know, change our view and question these things? And I think we're in an era where we are questioning these things and that that hopefully will be really beneficial to, you know, the generations after us. So, right. And, and you know yeah. what, if, if we take this argument to its ultimate conclusion, it's not even mm-hmm. just gender differences. We're going to be doing cheek swabs for specific genotypes of people like in in caffeine Mm. research some people are fast caffeine metabolizers some are slow and so rather than gender um yes that's true that's one way to drill down but we're actually going to be see more and more studies in the next 10 years um on you know what genotype are you and because people's I mean, nutrigenetics is real. Like some people have the genes to respond to saturated fat better or more poorly when it comes to cardiometabolic risk, you know, or or to folate or to fish oils. And so, yeah, we're going to be drilling down more than just things like um, fitness status or gender. You're going to start seeing very targeted studies uh, to your everybody's point here about how science is reductionist. Uh, it's going to give you better data, but it's going to really, really emphasize population specificity because those studies that came out, if you're not in that gene pool, they won't apply to you, you know, mm, kind of right. thing. Yeah, anyway. All right. Yeah. So enough uh, geeking out here. Uh, Michelle, let's talk about some of your origin stories. So um, how you got involved in the fitness world, period. I mean, you can go back as far as you like historically. Just give our listeners some idea of who you are and where you come from. Yeah, sure. Um, So when I was, yeah, so I was athletic when I was a kid, right? I was a swimmer. I was a fish. um, Loved that. And then um, when I was in high school, I actually got into color guard, which you guys all know what that is, right? On the field with the marching band. Okay. But it was very, um, uh, it was real. It was really hard, and you were actually dealing with equipment. So you had these flags and rifles and things. So you were, your body awareness got really good. Your um, um, actually, you know, athleticism to some degree got good. I mean, we were national champions. It was a it was a big deal. I know. Uh, talking about geeking out, you know, marching band. Um, but um, anyway, I really always loved dance, but never studied it. So I actually became a uh, dancer late in life. And uh, I went to Illinois State. I thought I was going to be a teacher, took some dance classes, absolutely loved it. And then the short of it is I ended up actually getting a scholarship uh, to U of I for dance, which, again, this is really, it's really odd. I'm sure you guys have athletes in your lives or maybe some of you. Um, Those people that become athletes at a high level very late in life, right? So it was a little bit of that um, for me. Um, I went on to a professional modern dance career, did a little traveling around the world, and I had an injury. And it was actually a personal trainer who was a biomechanics expert that helped me, um, you know, feel better. And I struggled with my weight a little bit. I was a late bloomer. And um, so that also was of interest, right, the kind of weight weight loss component. 
And I really loved it. I always loved musculoskeletal anatomy. I started training. Um, I got my NCA cert. I um, it did an intern with a senior international USA weightlifting sports performance or, uh, coach. And so I got my USAW cert. And I learned about all the lifts. Although I have to say I'm the exact wrong body type, right, for all the Olympic lifts. I'm right. No torso, limbs like a spider. Right. You know, it's just, it's awful. It's not pretty, gentlemen. <laughs> um, anyway, but it was a great, you know, it was a great base of knowledge and learning how to do those the right way. And it, it was also a great view into, like, it taught me going through the Olympic weightlifting lifts and that kind of world taught me that there are a lot of people back then, you know, this is almost 20 years ago that would say negative things about them, but it's because they didn't know how to do them well, or they didn't know how to do them right, or they didn't know about the sport. So anyway, um, all of that went well. It was a great experience. Um, and I was working for big box gym and then decided to go off on my own. So I started my own uh, training business in Chicago, and I rented time out of a studio and, you know, just did everything the wrong way. Um, it was sort of the wild, wild west at the gym there. The trainers were running it, you know, a um, little bit nuts. But I learned a lot, and, you know, I'm the daughter of a safety and training manager and a uh, mom-and-pop office accountant, so safety and doing things the right way are in my blood. And I really wanted to run this business the right way. So I just read every book I could get my hands on. You know, I asked people to go out for coffee and sat down and, you know, tried to figure out the better way to do things. And then eventually when more audiobooks and podcasts and things came on the scene, I started listening to those all the time. Um, but I got to the point where, and I, you know, got married, had two kids, and we were about to move out to the suburbs and I was going to open my own studio, right? That whole that whole route, right? We know that track. You're an independent trainer. You want to do it on your own. And a client really threw me for a curveball. I was dazed from negotiating the lease. Um, and my career had been good, right? I had won some awards. I had a full book of business. Um, I was a full-time mom, so I was only training three mornings a week, but I was making eight grand a month, you know, Um and she said, no, I really, my client who had a million dollar company helping health coaches, she said, no, I really want you to help other trainers do run their business as well. And it was kind of, it was a big game changer. And within like a week, I was on that path because I'd already been mentoring other trainers. Trainers were all, I'd already been speaking for the NCA. I'd already been, you know, doing some things that were in that vein so I started uh, C. Jane Train, actually, at first. It was for going to be for female trainers only, and about three years ago. And then I had so much interest from male colleagues, you know, who needed help with the business of what they did. Because um, they were great trainers, but really struggling to make ends meet or deal with client problems or, you know, figure that aspect out, that... Um, I was like, okay, and I had a couple great business advisors, and they were, <laughs> you know, Michelle, come on, you know, open this up. And so I did, and it was a great decision because now we actually help studio owners too. And, of course, studio owners aren't just staffed with females. Um, so 
it's been really wonderful. Our online um, courses um, and coaching, uh, we increased revenue 18 to 143%. Um, and we reduced their time in the gym. And I'm really focused on also getting that work-life balance because so many trainers love fitness, but because they don't understand the business side, they're getting burnt out or they're getting frustrated or they're not liking what they do um, anymore. Um, so it's been great. It's tough, you know, of course, through the, through the, through the business, starting a new business, um, unfortunately went through a really difficult divorce. It was, you know, of course, best in the end, but, um, and now single working mom. So I definitely have a tremendous amount of empathy for all of those of us, you know, juggling a lot and still yeah. trying to move the ball downfield. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's where things are at. And I'm really, uh, surprised at like how I got here. Like if you would have asked me, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you're going to be running a business that helps fit pros with their business. Yeah. I never would have thought that, but I'm really, I'm really loving it. And I, I really, I really love my clients. I appreciate their trust and cause they're confiding a lot in me, you know, um, and in my business and in buying the product, you know, the course isn't, isn't cheap. And, um, so that it's serving them, uh, makes me happy. So that's the skinny. I don't know. Okay. How, how no, that's that, good. How'd that go? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I actually want to revisit uh, one little part of that that I think sure, is, is going to sure. be thematic with our topic. But uh, we're going to go to sure. break right now. And when we come back, uh, we're just going to uh, sort of tap Michelle's expertise here about, you know, ways to actually work in the fitness business and increase revenue and your impact and all that sort of thing. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety Uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video 
But if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, folks, we're back. It's Phil and Mike and Lonnie, and we're with Michelle Blakely, and we're going to talk about essentially making more money uh, in fitness, uh, or if you've never thought about making money in fitness yourself and that sort of thing. Um, I wanted to just revisit one thing that you had said, Michelle, about uh, you worked in a big box kind of environment, and then you went off on your own. Um, A, was that scary? And B, (laughs) did any of that transfer to your individual, you know, business? So I went from, that's a great question. And we actually, I actually got that question a lot with the business and made a course just for that. Oh, (laughs) Um, yeah, right. Because they were like, oh, I'm ready to go, but I'm scared to go. And there's Mm -hmm. never a good, you know, have you guys ever heard the, but never a good time to get married, have a baby or buy a house. Okay. Oh, yeah. it's sort of, yeah, right. It sort of feels like that when you're leaving one job to go off on your own. Um, when I left, I was leaving from Northwest Indiana to Chicago, and I thought I was going to send out. You know, back then we sent out letters. I was going to send out to, a letter to everyone in my network, and for sure, for sure, I'd have ten clients come with me. Right? You guys know what happened? Crickets. Mm-hmm. No one came over. So, yes, it was scary. Um, what I think was good, I did go into it with my eyes open. And I see that with a lot of trainers. If you go into it um, knowing you need to have some savings, knowing you need to have a plan, knowing this could go great or it could not, you'll be better off. The fly by the seat of your pants impulse, quit your job, you know, do a little math, you know, in the coffee shop one afternoon, that's not, that usually does not play out well. So it was scary. I didn't, I don't think I was able to bring any clients over at all um, because the distance was so far. Um, And yeah, it was, it was hard. I think finding clients and understanding how to own my business, right? Like own that I was in charge and making all the decisions was really tough at first. A yeah. lot of trainers get bogged down in, oh, I'll, you know, I'll put up my website and I'll work on my logo and I'll get my business cards and, you know, that kind of thing. That's not the hard part. And that's not the part we need to be focusing on, right? It's really more the client acquisition and what kind of systems you're going to have um, when you move over into the new space. Right, right. Yeah, it's fun to sort of explore your background with that because uh, I think all of us, the co-hosts on the show here, we're, we yeah. don't have a lot of that big box experience, right, and how that transferred. I mean, we came into this in different ways. Um, in each case, I'm sure, scary in its own way, 
you know, I mean, like sure. Phil, Phil dropping the big initial payment on a, a building, <laughs> you know, right, and, and stuff like that. Um, Phil, what were what was your thoughts? I mean, when Strength Guild started, I, I mean, I thought you were very sort of <clears throat> cautious. Like, I don't necessarily want to say risk averse, but like literally growing as the revenue dictated, right? Oh, Starting yeah. really, really simply, like literally in a, in a garage, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you that I probably approached this very differently than anybody, I don't know, in the fit pro world would. Mm-hmm. Like marketing and client acquisition and all that stuff is, is second tier to me. You know, number one, the only thing that I concentrated on was producing results. And that's still what we do today. It's all about that. And through that, everything else happens. If I produce results, if I show up with 15 lifters to a meet and we crush it, guess what happens? I get five more. That's all so I, I, about. Yes, <laughs> you know? I would argue. But I would argue that is your marketing strategy. Well, I would, but I just don't. You know, but it's 100% based on me paying attention to nothing but the client and making sure yes. that they crush it. That's it. <laughs> yeah, kind of a word if of I mouth. Do that, I think that's like, brilliant. Yeah, I have done zero marketing. I have never done put out a flyer. I've never put out an ad. I do not run sales. All I do is we we go in and we crush things, mm-hmm. and it's all word of mouth, a hundred percent word of mouth. <laughs> your team, but I but I would, and I think you're spot on. But your yeah. team being at these events, oh yeah, they are. They're walking. Is, that is a yes. right as oh I agree. To your team, your your athletes or your yeah. clients. Staying in your facility at all times. Yes, and the biggest mistake and, I see with people yeah. coming into my, what I'm doing, is they spend all their time buying things, and marketing things, and they're not producing anything. And with yeah. the with the the population I'm after, which is very much athletic and looking to kick butt, that's that's we if we're not kicking butt, we're not doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, right. right. Hey, know. Phil. So where did your initial clients? You didn't bring over any from your previous. I moved across country. Yeah, so, yeah. So how did you get opened. the first? You the know, first batch. I moved like eight hundred miles and then opened. Uh, a lot of it came from this. You know. Okay. I mean, and just years in the, the industry. So I mean, I, I didn't open until I had what ten years in of being well known around the country. Mm-hmm. So I mean, and then you know, like we've talked about before. I mean, my biggest thing we were getting ready to rent a space. And then I had long talks with Jim Windler, and he's like, don't do it. He said, the people you want will come to you. I don't, he said, don't seek them out. The people I'm looking for will come, and they did. <laughs> That's just what I opened, and oh, here comes six people. And then those six turned into ten. And then next thing I knew, I was running 46 people out of a two-car garage. And right, I was like, oh, right. crap, we got to grow. Yeah. And that's, that's our model. Our model has been grow when needed, <laughs> you know, not not – not buy this huge space and all kinds of stuff and the people will come. Yeah, I've seen that fail a lot. So I, Yeah, I yeah. think you're spot on with the start lean. Yeah. I think That's, everyone should start right. lean. Especially on the athletic front. I mean, if you can't, as a strength coach, working with people that are very athletically minor, performance-based, if you can't produce great results with minimal stuff, you, you need to go learn. Because <laughs> you know? it's it's not the stuff. The stuff isn't what's going to make it happen. It's mm-hmm. the coach. It, it really is. It's the coach. So and the culture. To, yeah. Oh yeah. And we our our gym is a family. 
you know, we really are, and we support each other in everything we do, from from competitions to, I don't know, I mean, a bad day. <laughs> you know, I'm calling right. you up saying, hey, what's up? You know, and my clients like it that way. You know, so we really have bred a, a family that, like you said, they they advertise for me. You know, right. they want other people to. You need to be a part of this, and we're very picky. It's weird. I mean, our gym has become very picky on who, who we and selective. You know, it's like if you don't know, you don't know. So yeah. <laughs> you're not supposed to know. Yeah. And we've built yeah. that. It's kind of like this. Uh, we're in freaking Topeka, Kansas, which is not a metropolis. But I, people <laughs> right. come from Scotland and Canada and all around to, to come here. It's become like a destination point. So that's cool. But that. that's because, yeah, I think that's though because, you know, Phil and Mike, you guys have the quality came before everything. Yes. And yeah. that can't be, that can't be negotiated. That can't be right. Rusty. Like a lot of what, lot of what I, um, you know, talk about, only only works with like ethical quality trainers or studio owners. It doesn't. You can't. You know. So yeah, I think I think that's a great lesson for all the listeners to real to realize like, just be a, an amazing coach. Mm-hmm. Care about your athletes. Deliver results yeah right yeah. that's first and foremost for sure yeah. yeah i agree something that both of you guys were alluding to uh and i want to ask mike about what was scary when the way he started too i mean because mike was a sure. freaking engineer and you know you had you were giving up significant earning potential to get oh, into yeah. fitness right <laughs> uh, but the concept of bootstrapping is something that i think phil you just did naturally sort of but and the the idea there is Start with what you have. Like, don't say, what do I need yeah. to get started? But start with what you had. And you had a garage, <laughs> you know? You had weights, and you had a couple of power yep. racks and stuff like yep. that. And right. I think right. I like that idea. Start with what you have, not not making a wish list of what barriers, you know, what things do I need before I begin. And Because that's, that's, it's a sure way to kind of shoehorn you into doing something, you know, and getting some experience or some data under your belt but i was gonna say if anyone's interested i have a you know what you need and what you don't list in one of my courses i'm happy to give it to any readers that want it that kind of says that like yeah okay you're gonna get charmed by this this and this but no you don't need that start here Mm -hmm. and and work on the business don't get sucked into the stuff um yeah, so Mike, what about you? Uh, th- what was scary or did anything transfer from your, your previous profession and that sort of thing? Um, I mean, I'm a little bit different since I started working training people on the side 2006. And at that time, I was still working um, pretty much full-time for a medical device company. So I worked for them for about 10 years. So I graduated, had a master's in mechanical engineering, started working for a cardiovascular company. And after about... I was probably around seven years in. I knew I was going to leave, but there's a jumping off point of, oh, I'm going to lose all my insurance. I'm going to lose all my income. (laughs) So maybe I should get experience like training people like in person. So I started working at one of the local gyms, did that for quite a while on the side. And I remember at one point I went to my financial advisor and said, hey, I'm just going to just leave this job <laughs> and just go be a trainer. And he looked at me and he's like, are you sure you want to do that? I'm like, well, I don't know. It can't be that bad. And he <laughs> thankfully talked me out of it. 
which was very wise. And he said, how about we just, you know, discuss this and have a plan to what your exit is. And so I said, okay, so once I am making from fitness at least two-thirds of my income that I'm making at the medical device company, then I will, then I'll leave, right? Because once I leave, then that frees up, you know, 30, 40 hours a week, you know, for me to do fitness stuff. Um, so that took quite a while. I mean, I stayed working there for another six years. And granted, I went back to school at that time, too, so I put another monkey wrench in everything. Um, but basically, I left, you know, making $70,000 a year with full benefits and everything else to, you know, kind of start over. And luckily, I had put yeah. in enough, you know, time and effort and things at that point that, you know, it was pretty scary, but it was, I think, doable. And then, I don't know if this is good or bad, but at the time, I actually hired uh, a business coach because I realized I didn't know anything about business. I didn't read business for fun. And I was paying him about $2,500 a month. Yep. just to try to figure business stuff out. He did the back end of the website and did some of the sales pages and a bunch of other stuff. And at the time, I just basically almost pissed myself to sleep every night. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm spending all this you know, money. You know, I lost money for six months in a row. But at the end, it was worthwhile because I had built stuff up. I knew what to do. I understood you know, just some basic transactional stuff. You know, because I didn't learn any, I, just, I never took a single business class in my life. I don't understand HTML, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think all that to say is that it, when I tell people now, it's like, just make sure you have the experience. You know, how can you get experience while you're doing something else? And then what is your exit point? Like, what is the goal that you're trying to reach that you're like, okay, whatever that is, I feel pretty secure now that I can leave and do this other thing. And it's probably going to be okay instead of just, you know, I've seen way too many people like, oh, I'm going to go spend and just, you know, buy a gym. There's a gym here locally that got a big investor. Man, the place was huge. There's like eight rooms to it. They must have dropped easily a quarter million dollars on all brand new, top-of-the-line equipment. They stayed in business for a year. Every time I went to lift there, there's like freaking tumbleweeds rolling by, and then they just closed their doors because they went under. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but there was no culture there. There was never anyone even training anyone there, and I guess the people who were running it just had no idea and just thought, "Well, we'll put a sign on the door and people just flood in." Well, they didn't. <laughs> right, right. Now, yeah. Mike, that that begs the marketing question because I'm as I'm sort of looking over this list of things that we were going to discuss from you know where do your favorite clients come from to marketing. Uh, you mentioned HTML. Uh, to me, that offers some clues into your mindset. Like you're very online, right? I mean, is this yeah. is that how you marketed? Because it's not like, a, you know, you are a world champion deadlifter. Like Phil has had a little bit of oh, a no. like competitive cred going into this. Like, how did you market? So what I did locally is I just grabbed as many people as I could find and just said, "Hey, you want to do a session for free?" Oh, <laughs> which okay. I don't know if that's good or bad. And what I did was a lot of movement assessments and stuff at that time. So I took all the the misfit people that no one wanted to work with because they had, you know, right knee pain, but they wouldn't go to see a physical therapist because it wasn't bad enough. Like all that really gray area stuff. And they wouldn't lift because they're like, every time I lift, I get hurt. So I had all the, even now, I still have people who have all the kind of weird, you know, metabolic or movement type stuff. And then once you did some stuff and it worked well for them, they were so excited they, you know, tell all their other friends. That's what I did, sort of an in-person type thing. And then I transitioned to working stuff out of my garage. In terms of online, I just started creating more content. 
I mean, the one intelligent thing I did is I've had a newsletter for, man, almost nine years now, I think. Mm -hmm. So I actually started getting people's email addresses, wrote for a bunch of different sites, and I think that actually did help transfer. But I think the biggest thing is just putting out actual content. You know, anyone now, I would say, who sells stuff online and is still successful at doing it, they've all put out just a ton of content. You know, from Mike Robertson, Eric Cressy, you know, you guys, you know, Chad Waterbury, John Russian, you know, pick your, whoever it is that's been doing it for more than a couple of years or decades now, all of them have put out just a ton of content to help people. And I don't think there's a way you can sort of fast circuit that for long-term success, especially online. All right, now that begs a question that I want to ask Michelle then about um, you've made some comments before about professionalism and not mm -hmm. giving too much away. What's your personal red line? Like what do you provide as content for free um, versus what you don't? <laughs> you know, I mean, right. what's, what's your red line for that kind of stuff? How do you look at that stuff? Right. Mine, mine personally, uh, well, I'll try to answer it in two ways. As a trainer and a, a business owner that, you know, my service was personal training and fitness help, that I, I, I became very specific. I did not give away free sessions ever. Um, that it was very much um, I would do a consult, right? I would talk with them either on the phone or in person, um, a lot of listening, a lot of understanding where they were at, and then absolutely to forgive me. I think it was Mike's point about you know the content, you know putting the content. I had a newsletter for you know ten years as well, um, and having that out there so they could see your voice and trust you, right? Um, so that would be I you know do things in the community for free, but they were only coming in for a session if it was paid. And that first session on my end was an assessment. Like it was a full 90 minute, you know, sit down assessment um, kind of process. So that was my line, especially near the end of my career. In the beginning of my career, I did a lot more things free and it was not the right way to go mm -hmm. because I don't believe people value what they don't earn. I may get some comments on that. Yeah. No, I agree. no, I agree 100. I don't do anything uh, anymore. Nope. No, I, maybe not from you guys. I want to your listeners. Um, and I, you know, I really think that you know, yes, money is important. You know, I love money and I believe in abundance, but that's not really, in large part, why I think a lot of us should charge uh, competitive rates. It's because then there's buy-in from the client, right? <laughs> then they're saying this is a physical manifestation of like i am investing in myself i am investing in this decision i'm going to commit i'm going to do it you know mike when you were paying 2500 for your business coach i'm pretty sure you didn't cancel those appointments very often oh you know? god no and that was <laughs> right? probably yeah. thing at that time that forced me to take action on it like i right. slept four to five hours a night which i don't recommend but i made sure i got it done <laughs> yeah. Yeah. right right so then on this side of things, um, you know, with CJ and Jane Train, it's a little bit different, um, and we keep evolving our, our process, but, you know, definitely put out free content, definitely speak for organizations, which that's really, I'm, I'm really loving right now, um, which, yes, you know, we're paid at times, and that is appreciated, but that's not, 
usually it's just covering what we're doing. It's not really, um, you know, you're not necessarily making money in doing that. Um, so those things I think are free. And I think those things make sense where I draw the line, um, is the people trying to get coaching or get information for free. Like they understand that a consult or a coffee is appropriate. We need to get to know each other. This is an investment. You need to understand, um, you know, what I'm like and what this process would be. That's fine. That should require a certain amount of time investment on my part. But when people keep, um, you know, connecting or calling or not connecting or calling, it's my responsibility to say, I'm more than happy to help you with this five or 10 minute question. But if you want to, you know, use my services, we're going to need to, you know, have a, um, you know, a coaching um, relationship or professional relationship. And most people understand it. Most people understand that they're actually, they actually don't realize they're taking advantage of the situation. So it's on us to monitor that. And I mean that as trainers and studio owners as well, right? Like, it's our job to have clear decisions on, yes, everyone gets a free session and then it's a paid assessment or everyone gets one week of classes or everyone gets one week of coaching or, you know, whatever it is, think it through and decide it. So then you're not being taken advantage of. They're unclear on what this relationship and situation is. And then your quality doesn't suffer. I think it's because, it's a good point, Michelle, about yeah. about um, being clear about the relationship because our listeners have mm-hmm. heard us bitch and moan for years about <laughs> people come to you and they're not trying to get one yeah. over on you. They're they're truly naive, right? In that they're like, yes. even with the podcast, they're like, "Can you put me on a diet and exercise program?" It's like, do you know what you're asking? Like, right. Right. you are asking right. for dozens or hundreds of hours of effort uh, at a professional scale. Uh, and I think right. part of the reason we have this is because uh, unlike law or dentistry or even dietetics, fitness is an unlicensed profession, right? So people yep. don't come to you with that built-in expectation that this phone call is going to cost $300, you know, um, kind right. of thing. Uh, and so it, it's sort of naivete in that way, but, and then we're left trying to kindly, you know, uh, provide some mentoring and say, well, listen, um, this is part of professionalism. This is actually a profession and you get what you pay for, you know? And, um, so yeah, when people send us very specific, what, you know, crossing the line into, right. in, into personal assessment kinds of things. Like, here's what I yes. weigh, here are my, my weights in the gym. And, right. you know, <clears throat> that's kind of where we're like, well, we'll give you some principles. We'll talk about like what Mike would talk about, like, you know, soft knowledge kind of thing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of where it's going to have to stop. Otherwise, I can put you in touch with Mike or Phil and you can, you can dig as deep as you want on the assessment side, you know, kind of thing. But... And I think it's on us to say it. And I think some of us don't like it, right? They don't like that we have to say to people, you know, hey, you realize you're taking advantage, right? But if we find tactful ways to say it, right, after working it out a little bit, then it's super easy, right? Like, it's easy for me now. 
when well-intentioned, they don't realize they're taking advantage of, you know, trainers or studio owners that, you know, are considering my services. When I, you know, say to them, I love talking with you and you know I absolutely want you guys to succeed. I'm happy to help you with this one quick question. Moving forward, definitely consider our metal coaching program. I'd love to help you on a recurring basis. Right. Yeah, it's nice to be able to have a, an information product or a, a something you can point to and say, this is what I think you need. You know, something's kind Yeah, of well, no, met, yeah, and metal is just our co- – right, right, yeah, absolutely. Or to say in your trainer's, you know, situations, right, like, I love that you're so interested in this, and this is absolutely my passion, but that's a huge project. So yeah. let me know if you need some help, you know, finding a professional to hire to tackle that for you. Right, right on. I think the bigger issue with all of that, too, is just boundaries. And that's yeah. one thing I had to go through recently again, too, is, you know, when you start – Kind of saying yes to everything is beneficial, but then mm-hmm. at some point you have to really sit down and go, okay, okay, am I? Gonna, how many emails for free am I going to answer? It's not because I don't want to be not helpful, but that's taking away from something else. Like where is the line of just from time and everything else? So what I did recently is, I don't know if it's right or wrong, I just said, okay, I'm going to donate you know, two to four hours a week to quote-unquote free stuff that's not scalable. That's good. Right, one-off questions, emails, you know, private stuff, which is fine. And so I just set it up and said, okay, here's my calendar, and here's, you just call me. Like, literally, here's my number, my personal number. If you have an issue, call me. We'll talk about it because I can get more questions and answers and that type of thing. But it's very fixed. And if there's no calls, then I'll spend that amount of time answering whatever emails come in for free. Okay, once those four hours a week is up, if I didn't get to it, I didn't get to it. That's that's just going to be the way that it's going to be. Budget, you know. Yeah. But that took me a long time because yes, I had fourteen hundred emails. I just I just ditched because there's no way I was ever going to get back to them. And I'm like, that's okay, you know, sorry. And but that allows me then to spend more time writing stuff to my newsletter, putting out articles, making sure clients are taken care right. of, make sure that all those things are priority especially for fitness professionals and myself included, spending time, you know, on myself and my family so that I can continue to do this for another, you know, 10, 20, 30 years and not be burnt out at the end of the year trying to help everybody else. I think it's great advice, Mike, about budgeting time. You know, I mean, the older I get, I actually value time more than money at this stage in my career. I know a lot of people will be like, that's crazy, Um, but... Because time is money, and I do like the idea that you can be as philanthropic as you choose, but you've got four hours to do it. That's your that's in your allotted time budget, kind of thing, you know. So that's that's good stuff. We need to wind up here slowly. Um, So just I wanted to, if I can put you on the spot, Michelle, with one last comment. But so you mentioned a lot of things here about. Everything from professionalism, marketing, onboarding, clients, and we've really kind of run the gamut here. But if you were to, you know, give three, and again, I know this is cringeworthy, but three like real gold nuggets about um, if someone isn't making money or they've thought about getting into the field or if their revenue is suffering, can you offer from your vast experience like three things that really kind of bubble to the surface? 
Okay. If their revenue is suffering, right, whether they're independent or they own a space or something, so right, so money, their money coming in and money going out, there's just it's just not enough or good enough, right? Is that what we're answer- answering? Sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Three things to look at. I would say just what we touched on. Look at your time and how well you're managing yourself, because. I'm certain there's a bad habit or two or three or 10 in there somewhere, right? Simple things like the most productive time of the day for you should be the most money making or um, important, right? So, um, you know, 2 p.m. is that slump. You schedule those, you know, easy meeting calls for 2 p.m. Planning your expenses for the month or figuring out your debt reduction plan or your client acquisition efforts, right? Or how you're going to post all the fabulous results from your athletes on your social media with the right hashtags because you're not doing it, but you're sitting on that gold mine of, you know, fabulous data that you're going to do first thing in the morning when the house is quiet and nobody else is, you know, around. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think time is number one. Analyze yourself as objectively as you can and see where you're misusing your time or not um, being as efficient as you could be. Um, Number two, if your money is hurting, you've got to learn more about money. You've got to see what's truly coming in and what's really going out. Right. And I know some people might reply, well, there's just not enough. Well, there might not be enough. Of course. Yes. But you can't figure out where the holes in the boat. You can't figure out where the, you know, the money is going until you figure out exactly where the holes in the boat are. Right. We think that our clients are paying us eighty five dollars an hour, but we have four different packages out there. We're bartering with one person and someone hasn't paid us on time in the last six months. Like, no, you really have to get an honest look at what's coming in and what's going out because that information will help you make the right decision moving forward. And I think the third piece, um, and this is pretty specific, but I think it's going to apply to enough of your listeners, Mm -hmm. is do your pricing research. Take the time and do it. I don't care how simply you do it, but, you know, one one rule of thumb I give trainers and studio owners, I want you to call three big box, three independent trainers, and three studios, right? Or if you're an athletic facility or something of that, or if you're searching your next salary negotiation, right? Um, ask around, get some resources to find out who's earning what. Analyze based on apples as apples as best you can. Right. So if you have an, you know, a master's degree and they have a six month personal training certification, obviously keep that in mind and then make sure your rates are competitive. OK. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're super niche. Right. I mean, just that one change. I've seen increase trainers and studio owners incomes well over 20 percent. Because they not only did their pricing research and thoughtfully raised their rates, 
they also then use that as an opportunity, and this is a great nugget, to then make sure everybody is following the same billing and policies and structure. Okay. Do you know what I mean there? So instead of you think everybody's paying every $85 an hour, but this person is on this package and that person is on that package and this person pays me cash on the table so I put it into my own account, I actually don't put it in the business account or whatever shenanigans are going on, you're not earning what you think you're earning. So not only do the pricing research, make sure you're priced high enough, make sure you know your competition so you can speak to that. When a potential client argues like, oh, well, you're priced so high. Well, I'm priced so high because I am I have a PhD. I've been doing this for 25 years, and I'm certified in all of these you know, specialties. Not only can you say that, but you can then have all of your clients on the same system. So your revenue is more consistent right, there. More calculable, right, yeah. You know, I, I cannot tell you the number of interviews I've had. Where a trainer will start the conversation with that they're earning a certain hourly rate and then we'll get into the nitty gritty and only about 30% or 40% of their clients are paying that. Yep. Yep. Yeah, the sliding scale And thing I think it should be a, re- is dangerous. a recurring billing model anyway, but... Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I ran into that in with nutrition counseling too because of my license, right? I mean, when you talk about like what are people yeah. charging? And by the way, this is very regional. Like, you can't go look at big box gyms on the east or west coast. And if you live in Topeka, Kansas, like yeah. Phil, that's not going to apply. You know, it's really going to be local. Right. local. <laughs> uh, and that's why I want you to do your price, you know, your pricing research where you are. Yeah. Of course. Totally, totally. Um, but yeah, I, there was a big difference for me between what dietitians charge clinically for an hour. Uh, you know, or we could charge a third party for, you know, insurance reimbursement or whatever, and what I would charge on the phone for what I would consider a a high-end nutritional consult for fitness-related stuff, which is, it was just almost a different business, you know, because there's no way I was going to spin my wheels with the clinical level pay um, when people were asking much, much more, and I was providing more services and more information and all that stuff w- with some of the high end, which is why I've always done so few of those sorts of, you know, distance nutrition consults. Uh, I'm still mm-hmm. bound by a lot of the same standards of practice, but the pay scale's not, not the same. <laughs> it's not because it's, yeah. like I said, it, yeah. it's a different business. Uh, so to your point about, you know, making everything as standardized as possible, um, that, you got to think about like literally uh, are we talking about almost two different business businesses here sometimes if the services are that different uh, in, in any case but my last point on that too is i think that if trainers forget that what they charge will also determine the quality of people that they get oh my gosh so absolutely I, I don't do a lot of inexpensive products even online where nope. it's an ebook or whatever I did for a while, like I did a $9 ebook and a $17 ebook. It was a freaking nightmare. Um, yep. So even, you know, with the online stuff I charge, it's, it's expensive. You know, if you want right. to do a session here for soft tissue work, it's 200 bucks a session. How would yep. I come up with 200 bucks a session? So I took a half hour, I called around and tried to find the most expensive soft tissue yep. person I could find in the area. They were yep. 150 a session. I'm like, fine, I'm 200 a session. Yep. <laughs> yep. No other reason. You know, and I'm like, and I said at the end, I said, hey, if you don't think it's worth it, then just don't pay me. Like, I don't want your money. Right. If you don't think you got enough value from it, 
And literally, I'm not going to charge you. And so far, hasn't been a problem. But now yeah. what I also because did is I put myself in the that. position, right, to say, now I'm charging this amount. I have to deliver, one, to make sure everyone's satisfied, or two, I don't get paid either. So, <laughs> yeah. But I think that has a, a wonderful benefit that it communicates clearly to your potential customer or to your existing customer that you know your worth. Right. And you know your value. Right. Like you're, you're, and you're serious gate, about it. Yeah. You're not messing around. Yeah. Valuation marketing is, is real. You know, uh, and, and honestly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike, I think you and I and, and, and Michelle and Phil, I mean, in one sense, we're lucky in that. Like I'm, I'm going to charge an astronomical amount for a distance consult, uh, you know, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. because I am not going to spin my wheels with a fifty to a hundred dollar session if it's going to no. if that's an hour long phone call. No. I, I, no, I I just it's not worth it to me. I can to no. your other points about budgeting time and everything. There's other tasks that are pressing down on me that are more more important at that point, right? So. Yeah, it's it's a it's a valuation thing, but it's also a screening tool, you know, not oh, not, definitely. not to have people coming in expecting a, a bunch of free free stuff but or cheap. Right. So, OK. All right. Well, right. thank you, uh, Michelle. I know you got to get going. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. No, I loved it. Anytime this is this. I, ju- I could talk about this stuff all day. I loved it. And again, really, like I said, I listened to your podcast a bit before coming on and I I really think you guys are doing great things. If anybody has any questions, I'm I'm uh, definitely interested in, in helping what's anybody the out. Best way for people to find out more about you, a website or oh, what's the best thank you. contact way. Yeah. yeah, it's under construction as websites always are, but it's C Jake and Jane Train. So that's S E E Jake and A N D Jane Train dot com. Or they can email me directly actually, Michelle at C Jake and Drain janetrain.com and that's michelle with two l's cool good stuff very cool awesome yeah thank you guys so much all right everyone we'll catch up with you next week so we'll see them see you bye hey listeners have you seen the store at ironradio.org there are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org 
And um, let us know what you think on the forums, and certainly you can request products, and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.